You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. All right, welcome back to Experiencing Data. Today, I've got Murray Cantor on the line, who is, uh, he has several different titles in, in your work, but you're currently the chief scientist uh, chief scientist at Aptage Consulting. But that's, you have a, a, a significant background uh, in engineering and uh, data science. So can you tell our, uh, first of all, welcome to the show, but tell us, jump in and tell us a, a little bit about your background, Murray. Thanks, Brian, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, I've been around a long time, so the, I'll try to keep this reasonably brief. <laughs> uh, b- back in the uh, early 70s, I got a PhD in mathematics from Berkeley. And since then, I've been really interested in the dynamics of innovative products and the, the dynamics and economics of innovative products and systems. Uh, in the back, uh, past, I was an industrial mathematician at Shell Research. I was a project and architect lead in IBM uh, workstation division, putting out AIX 3.0, former chief engineer of the service organization of Rational Software. Back in the day, Rational was uh, a leader in software development tools and processes. Uh, Rational got bought by IBM, where I became a distinguished engineer focusing on development governance and analytics. Since leaving IBM, I founded Aptage, which isn't really a consulting company. It's a product company that delivers services uh, for R&D project and portfolio management. I'm also the chief scientist at Hale.Sports, where we're looking at applying precision medicine techniques to uh, sports performance. And I'm also a consulting mathematician to Pattern Computer, where we're doing state-of-the-art pattern recognition of solutions for our, uh, industrial customers. You've covered a, a lot of different bases here, and I, I know you act, you have some experience getting involved with user interfaces uh, in, in addition to user experience. Uh, and in particular, when we had our pre-call, I, I know you had some strong feelings uh, about uh, explainability and AI models. Uh, so I wanted to talk about uh, XAI a little bit today, as well as what are some of the concerns that you've seen coming up uh, with AI-driven interfaces. We talked a little bit about you've done some work in uh, with airplanes, uh, if, if I recall correctly, in airlines. And so you know something about that. Obviously, there's a heavy part of your work that's that's not necessarily interface driven or uh, in front of the customer, you know, the, the deliverables are not necessarily interfaces, but you have those in mind when you're thinking about the outcomes that you want. There's a, there's a customer, a person involved, a human in the loop. So what is your process when you're working on these, these very complicated systems, uh, leveraging AI? How are you approaching the user experience piece and delivering value and making sure you know, the, 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 the math and the science and, and the technology is actually delivering outcomes. Like, tell us about your process. A lot of design principles are the same, whether or not you have AI. Mm-hmm. And AI just sort of raises the stakes. So I, I 
there's a variety of outside in design methodologies. Uh, I'm a fan of all of them, uh, not particularly wedded to anyone in particular. But the, the real question that you have to often face in designing an AI system is the so what attitude. Mm-hmm. So I've discovered this pattern. That's interesting. Now what? I had an example of a company that could look at um, EKGs and predict whether or not you were likely to have an event, uh, a cardiac event in the next six months. And they couldn't monetize that. And the reason was, that's interesting, but so what? Yep. So the reason, so this is part of the process question, which is people want to use artificial intelligence, machine learning, whatever, to do one of two things. They either want to make an intervention in the system or they want to automate some process that uh, essentially things that people are doing that now they want machines to do. For example, reading x-rays would be an example of that. They just want to automate that process. So the first, so like any other good design thing, you say, why are we doing this? What is this for? And if it's to automate something, well, then you understand exactly uh, the role. The person whose work you're trying to automate plays a role in a process. You just have to understand that role and uh, what the parameters, performance parameters are for that role. And then uh, how is that, how is the person who's being automated now interface with the system and that's probably good guidance for how your AI should interface with uh, other parts of the system. And the uh, how is that getting, how is that function getting measured? Well, that's how the AI should be measured. That you present that. If it's an intervention you're looking for, like what kind of treatment should I choose in this situation? Uh, this comes up in our sports example. What kind of training regimen, what kind of diet? should people have, what you want to do is support, the understand the decisions that are going to be made and report to the person who will make the decision what decisions are going to lead with what probability to what kind of outcome. And so you think a lot about designing for intervention. This actually made me think of, I was in an event last night and yeah. you're talking about interventions with, with AI and the the speaker actually he used like one of these scenarios such as let's say you uh, you have uh, an AI that's doing image recognition and it's looking for cancer you know at X rays mm-hmm. or some things and it says I I think we've identified a, a cancerous growth here and and based on all the information the recommended treatment is X and the system is seventy five percent sure that that's the right path the doctor mm-hmm. has three years of experience, maybe let's say three or five years of experience. And maybe they've seen, I don't know, a hundred patients and they feel like it should, no, I actually think why would be the better one. And they're relying on their gut and, and their, you know, their experience, which is what we've traditionally used with medicine for a long time. And it was a, they took a survey of the room, a rough survey of the room. And the general feeling was like, if this was life or death, well, I'd still go with the doctor, even though the, the AI has looked at you know, maybe it's looked at a million scans uh, and it's, its success rate is quite high versus someone that has less experience and maybe they've only looked, seen a hundred scenarios. Can you talk about like this friction uh, and these kinds of recommender systems? Um, ha- any, any way you might approach uh, the design or the solution 
or how do you talk to the the customer when you're building that system about these scenarios? Does this has ever come up in your work? I, I think there's probably four questions in there, but let me, yeah. let, me tease, <laughs> Sorry. let me tease them apart a bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the first of it, the first one is um, we're getting into uh, how did the how did the system uh, make the decision and understanding the causal model and the probability chain that led to the causal model is real important at this stage. So uh, uh, there's been a lot of really good work in the last couple of decades about uh, uh, causal model, causal modeling in general. There's uh, the recent book by Judea Pearl, The Book of Why, which explains some of this history and some of this thinking. And so, uh, he actually recently had an article in Quantum Magazine to, for real AI, you've got to talk about cause and effect, as well as just matching um, uh, parameters to uh, training against parameter sets like image recognition. So what you're trying to do now is predict a future outcome, uh, and you have don't have the... Uh, luxury of doing an experiment. So first, the doctors have not been well-trained in this. And so most of the people I, I hang out with would actually trust the AI more than the doctors, believe it or not, because they understand these causal models. And part of the whole revolution of precision medicine is to get to a point that we have these predictive models based on individual parameters that are deeper than the kind of learning that patients have, that particularly young doctors have, which is uh, they've seen a few hundred cases and they don't understand the confounding variables very well. Mm -hmm. So this is an education that just is, this is both research and education and we're just at the beginning of these times. So I would like to believe that in two or three years, people would understand these things better and the the doctors would be more comfortable understanding the answer. Now, a better solution to, in both cases is, if I'm given a 75% chance, this uh, treatment might work, and this treatment is very um, has risks on its own, and the treatment might kill me, uh, what I would like is more evidence. Mm -hmm. And so a better solution in both cases is not to believe the doctor or the AI system, but to ask the question, what further evidence would I need to gather? What other additional tests should I take? Uh, what kind of uh, biopsy should I have or something that increases the probability of the prediction uh, of the intervention being more favorable, of getting the favorable outcome of choosing this? And so the goal at that point is both the, the, what the doctor should do is like, like in house on TV, the old series, he should order another or she should order another test at this point and not, and, and if the test is expensive, so be it. Now we have enough probability of a problem that requires a treatment that the return on investment on a more expensive test really makes sense. Mm-hmm. This actually dovetails into my next question. Let's talk about explainability for a second. So if the if the solution that the 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 software that the doctor is, you know, if it's doctor versus the software, even though it's not really what's 
happening here. We're both on the same side of the patient, hopefully. <laughs> but yeah. the software, if there was some explainability around the prediction in the model and the doctor was able to help the customer work through that and understand why did the system come up with this, maybe to help the patient understand this, this prediction is based on a lot of parameters that personal information uh, about your particular health that factored into this many more variables than maybe they've seen. I wonder if it's like, is that something that the doctor and patient work together through? And what is the role of explainability there? And I know, I know you have some strong feelings about that. We don't really know exactly how explainability is working in these models. So can you, can you talk a little bit, a, a little take a tangent here about explainability and how that, that might fit into this situation? Sure. So explainability clearly is, is really key. And we're in early days. So my strong opinions, which I shared with you earlier, is the companies out there, IBM, Google, uh, Amazon, whatever, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. The big companies right now are sort of jumping the guns and saying they have explainable AI when they don't. And it's going to take us a while to really get there. And if you think about it, we don't... If you ask a person how they made a decision, often they can't really even explain it themselves. They just say, well, I'm just going with my gut. What does that mean? Right? So explainability of anybody making decisions is actually hard right now. There are two issues here. One is that um, the early version of, of, of need for AI is just dealing with the problem that People have begun to notice that AI uh, classification algorithms of thing, uh, for things like hiring and, and giving loans or whatever that involve have biases in them. And what they realize pretty quickly is that if you the system today has a bias, and if you train a system to do an AI system to do what the system today does, it'll reflect the same bias. Right, right. And so um, it's the, you know, you teach it, you give it a training set of how, a, how a, a bank already makes a decision. If the bank is biased, the AI system will become biased. Simple mm -hmm. as that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And since we don't really know a neural net, a deep learning neural net, literally is a black box. We don't really know what it's doing. What's happening is that it has literally maybe a million free. Uh, degrees of freedom in, in, in the uh, interfaces between the layers. And it has adapted those parameters, those interface layers, uh, actuators, to match the results of the data using gradient descent algorithm of some sort, just standard, just uh, pattern matching, it's just like any other kind of regression thing. But it matched so many different parameters, and we don't know why, that we don't have, so, looking at the neural net and understanding how decisions were really being made by that is still an open still an open field. Uh, it's going to involve, in the end, two things. One is that we're looking much more deeply at information geometry, information manifolds, and essentially the deeper mathematics of the structure of these neural nets. And that's being done, there's some really good work being done in the academic community right now, and that's really going to help. And we're looking at that in various other places as, as well. Uh, small companies are looking at that, and I'm, presumably that's being looked at inside the big companies as well. So that's one thing. 
And the other is, let me just make this other point, sure, sure. is that causal, we're not going to have explainability until we also include the causal modeling stuff that uh, Pearl and his colleagues are writing about. And it's the combination of information geometry and causality, which is going to lead to explainability. And we're just early days. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be great when we understand this deep more deeply. I guess I would challenge one thing here. So I, I totally sure. understand the bias, the issue with bias, right? If the training data was biased in some way, then explainability is only as good as what it it learned from, right? It's it, it's it's the input, right? Garbage in, garbage out. The explainability is really very simple. It matched the bias in your training set. There, right. I'm done. Now what? Right. So are 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 you saying that because of this, there? I I, I would say understanding the risks of bias that may be in the system to begin with removing explainability uh, if you have the like if you have a, a a model that can take advantage of uh having explainability as part of the uh the experience and the display that happens there i would i would posit that it's net better than the complete black box situation because there's probably times where when the the explanation that is provided still requires human and in, human involvement, right? Like there's still, there might be that kind of level two analysis that the person does, especially if they get uh, a recommendation or an explanation that they don't uh, agree with, or they find is suspicious or whatever, possibly maybe to say, Hey, the, this, this is this, this prediction feels weird. I want to feed that information back to the team that created the models because maybe we're discovering where we have some bias, but, I would net that that's, do you not feel that's net better than a complete black box situation? Well, of course. And the point is, so we have to open up the black box and there's some ways to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, one is this, that was essentially my point. Mm -hmm. Yes. That explainable, explainable AI is very important, but it's not simple. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the bias with that, with the bias, the way to look at bias is to say there's some sort of latent variable in there that is uh, resulting in uh, lurking behind the, 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 uh, the decision process. Okay, and that's the language of causal, causal models or whatever, where you're looking for the confounding variables. And if, it, it, and if you suspect that race is an example, there are techniques for uh, deconfounding the model for the bias for those kinds of biases if you can identify them and again that's more than just open that and and you'll find that in the causality literature confounding and deconfounding of, of the data and that that's really cool stuff and it's not being used enough yet but it's on the rise and uh, we're going to see a lot more of that going forward which is all great. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is, though, that there is latent structure. If I try to open up the, if I look at the black box and, and, and try to open it up and try to understand the structures within that, in other words, what what is the, is there a geometry to this model? And does that model, ex, and is that another way to explain how these confounding variables are coming into the picture? And there's research going on in that too. And that's, that's what I was mentioning about the information geometry taking. Right now, 
uh, the no that's a complete black boxes. We don't want them to be. We want to understand what the deeper structure is of those. And that involves information theory and some modern ways of looking at the geometry of the parameter spaces, uh, which uh, there's something called topological data analysis. There's information manifolds, stuff like that, that is going to um, give us some deeper insights into those into the effect of those confounding variables. So all I'm saying is, yes, let's not jump the gun. Let's not pretend we haven't yet. Let's work on it. And in the meantime, having a person in the loop is always a good thing. We had talked a little bit about the, the I forget how I came up, but the 737 MAX situation. I had read an article at the time, and I don't know, somehow that came up when we were first talking. And, and you had some opinions about uh, designing the system, especially you know, a system in this case, which was opaque uh, to the customers, and it yeah. caused... Uh, it caused death. Unfortunately, it was it was a poor choice. You have some strong feeling. There was a New York Times article that just came out that really unpacked, uh, at least from this the the writer's perspective, about what happened in that scenario. And I, my general takeaway was that there was fault. Uh, he felt there was strong fault on the training side uh, of of the airlines in terms of who they're putting in the cockpits to run these systems. Uh, and there was also software. You know, there was an interface problem with how this system was opaque. Uh, to the the operators, so can you talk a little bit about this and and some of your uh, your opinions about designing the system and and an inte- quote intelligent uh, system that's supposed to be helping the human operator? There's no single fault. There's lots of faults that went into the 737. Uh, in my view, fiasco. It's still playing out. So here's here's the situation. Boeing had needed to put a new kind of engine on the on a fuselage for which it wasn't designed. They, they essentially jury-rigged that by, by saying, okay, we've now taken a stable aerodynamic system and made it less stable by putting on these engines for which it wasn't originally designed. And we're gonna treat this as, a, as an upgrade, not as a whole new system. And we're gonna fix the instability with one sensor and some software. And we're going to put this out to the whole world, and it's going to, and all the, and we know that out there there are going to be pilots of, of a whole range of capability. But we're not going to tell them, by the way, we're going to do this. Okay, so the, now from so this opens up all kinds of issues about failure of process and whatever. And now they're opening up a safety board and whatever. Blaming the small airlines for not having enough training is really missing the big point. In this. So I was not impressed with the New York Times articles. I think they really missed the whole the whole main point. So, which we what happens when you're designing an airplane? Actually, well, can, let me stop you, you real quick, just in case listeners uh, haven't are, haven't read up on this. I'm going to summarize it real quickly. Feel free to correct me, but uh, the, the sure. long and short of this, as I understand it, it, you know, the 737 has been around for a long time. They wanted to create a quote better version of it. And if you're an airline, you don't want to create, quote, a new airplane, because as soon as it's a new airplane, it has to go through way more uh, check, a long checklist of approval before it can be flight ready. And so instead, mm-hmm. you call it a 737neo, a max, you, <laughs> and you make your adjustments to a current right. plane. So it's, it's more like an adjustment, and you don't have to go through the same hoops. So in this case, it was more fuel efficient, uh, better, better engines. 
and and but because of the new hardware they wanted to put on the plane, the, the, this better engine system, uh, and to get those efficiencies, they needed to counter some of the 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 effects that were the aerodynamic effects by putting in a software, what what turned out to be an automated software system that would control for some of the new variables that this the engines introduced. Uh, am I correct? And that's kind of like our starting point for this. Well, close enough. What they did, the new engines introduced the instability in, um, I think it was the all, or one of the three dimensions of how airplanes transform. I mean, it was, it was the, not the all, the attitude. And uh, so what you want is that a airliner essentially will glide, even if an engine fails and, and whatever, it has to be real robust. What you don't want is an airline that, uh, you know, a jet fighter is a whole different thing. You don't, you don't want those to be able to turn on a dime and win in a dogfight. Uh, for an airliner, you want it to be very stable, not not very agile, but uh, safe. Probably would do real badly in a dogfight. So what happened is, is they broke their standards of stability, essentially. And they knew that, and that's why they put in this automated system, which was going to account for that by adjusting the air uh, flight services. Um, the problem, so now what we have is something a pilot would normally, if, if the plane is, ha- is at the right, wrong attitude, that is it's, it's, it's heading up or down incorrectly, you allow the, the pilot is supposed to detect that and make the correction and manually override it. And so what you have, the total system is a combination of the of the plane, its sensors, its software, and the pilot who's supposed to do the right thing under the right circumstances. The problem is even what we can seem to have detected, even if these were, by the way, some of the pilots are pretty well trained who had these problems, is that they they would do what they were trained, what they what they should have done, and the plane. They didn't know how the plane was going to react to those actions. And so the interface between the plane and the pilot was broken. A predictable action of a pilot led to a worse problem for the plane. Right. And the designers of the interface should have seen this coming and they should have either put in very severe training things, which they didn't, or they should design a system for which when it gets into instability, it, it essentially leads the pilots doing the right thing if it can. It turns out this thing, there was probably nothing the pilots could have done. In terms of interface for systems design, what you want is you imagine that the use, that the operator and the uh, vehicle for vehicle design are really together a total system which is supposed to be able to behave in some sort of effective, uh, safe manner. And you design the interface to the operator in such a way that uh, reinforces that. And you see that in like the modern cars with the lane keeping and the automatic speed controls on the highway and a whole bunch of other things that reinforce the right behavior of the driver. And eventually we're going to get to, you know, even more and more autonomous driving, particularly on long haul trucking or something. Mm-hmm where in fact the interface to the driver, there may not be any driver at all. But in the meantime, what you want is that the feedback loop between the driver and the vehicle is such that it's uh, they both can play their role in such a way. So here's another example. 
suppose you're in the air and you're about to have a collision and the, the radar detects that a collision is imminent and the right thing for the plane to do in this case is to uh, veer upwards and to the left because that's the convention. If two planes are about to hit each other, there's some convention about how they're supposed to uh, avoid, how they're supposed to uh, change course to avoid hitting each other. You want the plane to do that automatically, and you probably don't want that overridable by the pilot. And um, designing that level of experience and interface, and you want the pilot to be understand what the plane is doing and be comfortable with the fact that that's what's happening and be glad for it. Right? So you design a system like mm -hmm. that. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I understand what you're saying. The and they didn't do they didn't do that for the 747 Max, 737 Max. Yeah, I mean it's it was unfortunate. It's I, I think the article is worth a read whether you see it as a human, you know, if you see it as a training issue putting pilots in the air with not enough experience or mostly software or a combination of the two. Um it definitely well, they, Go ahead. Yeah, I think blaming the pilots is just the mm -hmm. wrong thing. The, the aircraft manufacturer knew the population of pilots they were selling this plane into. And they should have accounted for that. How do you in that situation then, like, I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of Boeing. Obviously, I can't uh, in that case. But there, there's always this balance between uh, a prescriptive situation, like an automatic system that's going to predict and potentially actually enact some kind of action versus that you know, human intervention thing. So is there a process that you think about when you approach this with a, a client, for example, about when and how much human intervention are we going to allow in the system, especially if it's like, do we want to expose that knob and let them dial it in however they want the end user? Or is it really a knob that we shouldn't let them, but we'll give them a different knob that they can, you know, work with? I'm, tr I'm trying to simplify this down a bit, but there are times yes. when you probably do want that human to be able to take override and not is there a general way you go about doing that in your work to kind of work with a client maybe a customer who's asking for a system that's does some automation how, how do you how do you approach that yeah so first of all you explicitly design these scenarios as part of the uh specification mm -hmm. of the system and this is what ux people do and mm -hmm. whatever so when you're looking at systems decomposition you look at the total system and then you decompose it into the vehicle and the operator, for example. And you do the discipline of systems engineering with that kind of decomposition. But to answer your question more fully, is that's why there are simulations. And so what you do is you build a faithful simulator and you uh, run a bunch of, you do system tests with simulations. And you have pilots flying the simulated airplane under enough of these different scenarios to validate that the that the system is airworthy in a way that pilots can will react appropriately. So you test it just like anything else. And the answer is here's the spec. You know, you you run system tests with simulations. And if if people are crashing the airplane in the simulations, you update the design and do something. Sure, sure. You know, really, and this is a standard kind of thing. It's a discipline that somehow got lost somewhere in the process. I don't know exactly what happened inside Boeing, and I probably should. I'm, and I'm not an expert who studied all the evidence, and everything. I'm drawing some conclusions from the outside, look, 
the outside looking in. But this is the sort of the reason you have those kind of systems is to avoid exactly this, these scenarios that happen to the 737 mm-hmm. man. Yeah, the I mean, you you basically summarize the same thing that, you know, designers, uh, you know, most software designers are, you know, good, good ones, at least the ones that are doing what we should be doing is validating the system that you're designing as you go. And That's so right. you're running, we usually call it yeah. a, a usability study. Uh, and, and sometimes it's not always understood by non-designers, but you're not testing the people. You're actually testing the system. You're testing often the interface. Exactly. Uh, it's not a test. In fact, we kind of, sometimes they tell you to avoid using the word test uh, when you're talking to a participant and you tell them it's a study and we're here to evaluate a piece of software or, you know, in this case, a cockpit uh, to figure out if it's the right design or not so that they don't feel like they're a rat in the maze kind of thing. It's really studying the maze. Um, yes. So well, That's perfect. So think of it like this. That's exactly right. And that's really it's so important that this idea keeps getting gone. See, when you're putting out a, uh, a system like the, the aircraft, you don't. You have control over how the aircraft works. You don't have control over who's going to fly. Hopefully, there's some control, and, though, right? <laughs> I mean, I know well, what you mean, but like you, that's why we. No, you, but you don't. I mean, you, you know, you, there's regulations or whatever, but you can't stop. So uh, the thing is, is that what you do have is you you know something about the air, about the pilots, but you know they will have a range of experience, a range of capa- a range of capability. And uh, there's some this, and there's some likelihood, small, that you're going to put a pilot in there who's barely capable of flying this kind of plane. The odds of odds of that eventually happening are very high, and the plane should be robust enough to deal with that. So what you do is you plan for the range of capabilities, and the hope it gets into the problem. And the more airplanes you sell the higher the probability is that one of these poor pilots is going to start end up right. flying it. You see, and this is, and this happens, by the way, it's, what's interesting is like the, the, we, there was a whole business with Toyota and their quality control, but actually their quality control was probably power for the industry, but they sold more cars than anybody else. So more problems were beginning to show mm-hmm. up because they had more cars in the field. And so they have, so what they realized was they had a higher responsibility than the average car maker to make their cars safer because they were selling them to a bigger population. Mm-hmm. It's this is this is uh, really fundamental to understanding user design user experience and design is you ask the question who is the population of people who are going to use this and what is their range of capability. Yeah and you you're not you're not always gonna you know, I, I, testing one person, you know, you're testing the system with one person is not usually enough. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of times people ask, well, how many people do you need to study? My favorite answer to that is like, how many will it take for you to believe that the system needs changing? Or is it wrong? Um, there, there's some math there, right. but typically you you can test usually, you know, five, five to 20 people somewhere in that range, you're going to start seeing patterns typically pretty emerge pretty early. And if you keep seeing the same thing over and over, you know, an issue, then you probably know it's time to make an adjustment there. But I I don't know that that's that the people working on all these systems are always thinking about this kind of validation. You don't, I don't hear it. I mean, design, this is normal for design the design world this is like kind of normal at this point for most software design that you're doing some type of validation work it's 
it's not so much in the data science uh, people that are working on some of these kinds of systems, especially if there's not a large user interface component. So I, I know part of your work, you help clients uh, develop data science teams. And so talk to me a little bit about some of the, non, the non-technical skill gaps that you're seeing with uh, people in the data science and analytics field. May, is this one of them? And what are some of the other ones that you see? Well, what's really interesting about this is that uh, like in the simulation tests, you're not going to test the 100,000 right. pilots, right? And, and, and so what you have is a problem with which you brought up, which is really a small data problem. How do you draw the right conclusions from smaller data sets? And this is one of the advantages of these. Uh, this is where Bayesian techniques are really important which is you start, and these causal models, which are based on Bayesian techniques, which is, what you don't get is, the way I like to put it is, it's not garbage in, garbage out. It's uncertainty in, uncertainty out, right? And the question is, you only, so the question is, how many people do you have to test? And if you're smart, are you testing an inhomogeneous population? So that if you're only testing expert pilots, that's not gonna teach you very much. And so, so putting, attention to stratified methods of dealing with uh, more carefully selected populations and things. Right now, people are trained to work primarily in, with big data sets where, uh, and we run them through these uh, deep learning algorithms and stuff. The skills you need for this dealing with these smaller data sets where you can't run big blind experiments and stuff, you know, the other thing you can't do is put a, a hundred good pilots and a hundred bad pilots on two different planes and see how many of them crash. Right. Right. Maybe you can in the right. simulator, right? But a lot of experiments you can't do. So training, so one of the things we're not, which we're seeing not a lot of yet, but uh, there should be a, introducing causal models into these uh, organizations where people have been trained in big data techniques is one of the things I find myself doing a lot. Is saying, okay, we don't have the data for that. So now what can we do with the data we have or data we can afford to get using uh, more sophisticated probability theory? That's the first thing. So I, took, I, do, I end up doing a lot of that because that's, really, um, that's really all over the place. The second is um, the what I just generally find is that um, there's a lot of, and I think this is, this is just, again, sort of the maturity of the field. Neural nets and the like work better than we understand. We don't understand why they work as well as they do. But what happened is we just sort of got across some sort of computational barrier and suddenly they started working because we made them big enough. Okay. And then we started training a bunch of people on how to build big neural nets with all the ad hoc techniques that are out there. And there's a bunch of ad hoc techniques out there. And people understand that um, right now, working in, in, these, in these various uh, neural net environments like TensorFlow or whatever, is really just a mostly a matter of trial and error for uh, building uh, and applying eventually, it, it, it's, it's as much, uh, it's, I wouldn't call it an art, but a craft. It's not yet a science. It's like the early days when they were building engines before they understood what thermodynamics was. 
we're in that stage of the uh, this industrial revolution we're going through with uh, augmenting people's ability with machine learning. But right now it's more of a craft than a science. And so the um, we have people out there who are really good at working with these out working with these techniques and algorithms, but they don't necessarily understand they're essentially a solution looking for a problem. The people with the problem start asking people, they'll, they'll just start saying, well, let's throw AI at it. A lot of what will happen, you've seen this over and over again, is that people will throw the algorithms types that they know. So, you know, it's the hammers looking for a nail. When they don't have the depth to understand that that particular technique isn't likely to work for this kind of problem. And so, so what, and meanwhile, the executives don't know anything, don't know any better. And so getting to a point where we have senior data scientists who have the experience to know which of these various techniques and which of these variants of these techniques and how to pose the problem with the executives in a way that it can be answered, that right now is still an evolving capability in the field. And so I find that uh, building, I think you do this in your own practice, is, is that having web seminars, webinars, where you sort of inform each other with the, with the various stovepipe functions, learn how to collaborate and develop an answer that meets the business need and is still feasible with the kind of data they have. And, and the, the other thing that you often see is, I have this kind of data, it must be useful for something. Right. And I much prefer the other question is, I have this question, what kind of data do I need to resolve it? What kind of techniques? And how is that done? And do I, and maybe I need to be collecting different data than the data I have. So working, again, outside in mm -hmm. is a technique that a lot of these people are mm -hmm. taught. They're taught, here's your data set, do something with it. Not, here's my problem, what data do I need in order to do something, to get what mm -hmm. I want? Yeah, this this problem, I, I hear this a lot. My perception is that there, there are, I feel like, Business stakeholders sometimes think like if I if I hand the data warehouse to a data scientist, they will go look at all the stuff that we have in there, and then they will tell us what kind of magic we can create mm -hmm. from it. And their and their perception on the other end is like, I'm waiting for you to give me a great problem, and I'll let you know what data we need to solve it when you hand it to me. And so everyone's scratching their head, and we get these you know 85% failure rates on you know AI and big data projects, and right. because that there's something missing here, which is is understanding what problems could we potentially solve? What needs are there? What are the business objectives? What do people need or want to do? Uh, you know, with these systems or products, and and that's that's a space where I think designers can help out. We we provide that uh, the, the deep empathy part of it really helps you ground uh, some of this work, and, right. and and so that is partly what I try to work on with at least with the seminar is how do you how do you learn how to ask the right questions. Uh, to a business, back to a business person, if they are giving you a vague question like, um, can we have some machine learning? Do, does our product have ML in it? We want to be able to say it has <laughs> ML in it, you know, <laughs> exactly. which is not the right. But how do you unpack right. that and get to something where maybe there is a, a viable way to use ML to create a better experience or some business value, uh, but they don't know how to ask the question yet. So um, do, back to the what you were talking about with like the, the skill gap here is it is it kind of is it the situation where the the young data science talent 
only knows how to use a like I'm looking for places to use a random forest classifier because that's what I learned. Or it's they they do have a they do have a, a wide enough technical knowledge about the different mod, uh, the different types of algorithms to use, but they're not asking the question like they're going in with their favorite one to use or the one they know the best about because they're not really sure how to use the other ones, so they try to shoehorn it in to every problem they see. Is is it a lack of technical and the soft skill piece to to figure out the problem space, or can you unpack that a little bit? Well, first of all, um, it, of course it varies, right? But I've seen people, you know, you look at these books that say, learn learn TensorFlow in a day. <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean, you yeah. see these things out there. And, you know, so that's the one end. The other end are PhD students who understand these things very deeply, right? And they're right now, uh, being swept up by the big companies, and um, which is a good thing in a way, right? So uh, that that ranges. What I find is that even with solid people, this they don't. There's so many issues about vocabulary and overloaded terms and whatever. Is that the, neither side has actually been trained to talk to the other, right. and it's more like that. And this is what you do, I think. One of the techniques I use in uh, working, bringing uh, machine learning into an organization is I have the team write, the members of the team write a science fiction story. And this is like, a, you know, the whole point is, is you're trying to create a vision of what the enterprise would look like in five to 10 years because they have machine learning. What is it that the enterprise can do that they can't do now? What is it they need to have done that they can't do now? And you may discover that it's just, um, achieving better performance. It's, a, it's an idea of we're going to minimize the amount of time someone is waits for a train uh, all times a day. And so we're going to have a much more sophisticated allocation of resources than we have now where it's always on the same fixed schedule or something. And then we start going from, okay, what would a system look like that fulfills this vision? And we work our way down to uh, various AI approaches to try. This is, but again, it starts at the usual place, which is everyone should have the same vision of where they're headed to. And I find the story technique is a way to do that. I, I think that's that's super awesome. I, I love that. I we sometimes, or at least I sometimes in my own practice call call them North Star designs. And and part of it is like, mm -hmm. especially when you have technical people in the room at the early stages when we're talking, doing a discovery and even starting to sketch solutions out is to take implementation hats off and, and just put it aside because yes. you don't know, you may come up with like shoot a moonshot, but from the moonshot, you might find out there's these little tangents that are actually feasible things. But if you never let yourself dream that big, you'll never hit those the the small the small incremental steps that you may be able to take so that right. I, I love the idea of thinking big and then you know reality will always kick in you know the feasibility will kick in very soon but there there should be some time to, right. to let our minds uh you know go big <laughs> yeah and and you then you drill them back down right, to reality right. but until you know what that is you really can't ever get to uh a big picture plan so what kind of organization would i need now to implement this vision. And then you get into those kind of issues as well. 
uh but the vision is where you start yeah murray this has been a a really fun conversation i wish we could keep going more on this we've covered a lot of great topics here so is there a like if someone wanted to follow your work or you do write much or linkedin any social media how how could people stay in touch with you i i do write i have uh pci is about to publish one of my white papers pattern computer uh, the best way to get me is just on LinkedIn. I have an admirable enough number of followers. I, uh, anyone who wants to follow, connect with me, I'm happy to have them do that. I don't update my profile all that often, but I do put out uh, papers and I do post them when I do on LinkedIn. Awesome. Great. So that's probably the best way to find me. Murray Cantor. C-A-N-T-R. Great. Well, I will, uh, I will put your link in the show notes and, uh, Thank you so much for coming on Experiencing Data and sharing sharing your background. It's been really fun to talk to you. Oh, Brian, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.